As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and today my guest was Sally Hilton, uh, who is a sports psychotherapist and joined me to, uh, to talk about what that is, what she does, how it's different from sports psychology. Um, and also she shared with me uh, her, her uh, thesis on elite sport identity and mental health, which was absolutely fascinating. Um, I was delighted to read through it and it gave me lots of food for thought for, for questions. So as part of this episode, we discuss sports culture and vulnerability, athlete identity, uh, identity construction, but, you know, which is particularly interesting to me because, you know, we talk about the idea that footballers, uh, you know, many of them are in the public eye um, and uh, therefore have, you know, people constructing stories around them all the time so I, I was curious to ask Sally how that uh, hampers or helps their, their, their sense of self-identity which is um, a particularly interesting topic to me uh, sports therapy generally and also trauma and finally job security as well which I think is very important and is something um, that isn't spoken of very often as it relates to footballers I think perhaps because we all uh, are sometimes guilty of you know, thinking about footballers as the very pinnacle of uh, of that uh, sport, um, and considering the options that those sorts of players have as a result of their you know their financial security um, and the fact that lots and lots of football clubs would sign them if they were available, but that really isn't the experience of most footballers or most people who do that job. So the idea of not being able to necessarily control where you live or where you play, or even if you do play professionally or you know, uh, I think there there's a bunch of things that um, that are interesting related to that, and, and a lack of control that footballers sometimes have over their own lives. So, I hope those of you listening find this interesting um, and a bit of an antidote, uh, at the very least, to the stigma of uh, of psychotherapy. And I say that as someone who has uh, has been in psychotherapy for for five or six years now. It's a very important part of my life. Um, I, I, there was a time when I, I couldn't really function without it. So, uh, I'm delighted to be able to, to ask Sally some questions today about psychotherapy as it relates specifically to football. Um, and I hope that those of you listening find it interesting and also, um, can have a listen with some, some compassion. Uh, anyway, uh, Another thing that you might find interesting and read with compassion, or not compassion, but passion, 
Yes, that's better, isn't it? Is The Athletic. If you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, uh, you can get The Athletic uh, as part of an introductionary offer uh, for £1 a month, which is absolutely fantastic. And whatever club you support... Whatever sport you follow, really, we cover 10 different sports uh, with, uh, I don't know, something like three, 400 different top-line journalists. Um, do join us at The Athletic. It's, it's incredible value for money at £1 per month. And uh, there's something, uh, I mean, there's many things to read every day. So that's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Okay, and uh, for now, then, I will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace. I mean, actually, the, the professionally warm embrace, I suppose, of Sally Hilton. The first question, Sally, really, is um, what do you do? Uh, Right, so I'm a psychotherapist and counselling psychologist um, and I specialise in working with sports people. Um, So I work in private practice and that's with clients from a variety of sporting backgrounds and I can work, uh, work with people around issues that are affecting sports performance or around things like coping with the challenges of injury or retirement or helping people come to terms with and heal from difficult experiences they've had in sport. Um, And then there's also issues outside sport that I work with as well, um, things like relationship problems, addiction, um, destructive patterns of one sort or or another. So it can be anything really which gets in the way of of people having a um, a happy and fulfilling life um, and giving, giving their best in their sports career. As well as my psychotherapy work, I also do research. And so my research focus is typically on the ways that sports cultures can impact on well-being and performance. And so I divide my time between working with clients and working on research. What is the difference between a psychotherapist and a psychologist? In terms of a sports psychologist or... Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. there's overlap, um, definitely, in that psychotherapy and, and sports psychology would tend to be working on helping people to change, bringing out the best in people um, and supporting well-being. Um, but sports psychology tends to have an emphasis in their work around performance and helping people prepare mentally for the challenges of competition, uh, whereas psychotherapy is more about um, an emphasis on emotional and mental health. Um, But there is often overlap because there isn't really that neat divide between the person as a performer and other aspects of life. So in practice, it's very likely that if you're working with sports people in some psychological capacity, that you're going to be doing performance and well-being work. But in terms of some of the key differences, psychotherapists are also trained to actually treat mental health problems, and that's not usually the case with a sports psychologist. So psychotherapists would deal with the full range of clinical and mental health issues. Um, And as an approach in psychotherapy, there's a lot of focus on what we might think of as underlying issues. So it tends to be um, holistic. It's looking at the present in the context of the past and how problems that you might be experiencing in sport also show up in different areas of your life. And therapy is also about a relationship. So it's about being in a, a non-judgmental relationship where you can be honest um, and be vulnerable and be understood. I'm glad you said the, um, the, the, the bit about the separation between performance and, and personality because I want to come and talk about athlete identity a, l- a little sure. bit later. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's really, it's a really interesting uh, facet of this. 
But to start with, you were very kind to send me your thesis, and yeah. uh, I'm just going to read through a couple of um, a couple of quotes and ask you some some questions about them, so we can try and cover as, as much ground as possible. Sure. Um, the first the first quote is: uh, "It is of note that where sports culture sits comfortably with vulnerability, this is mirrored in the individual. By contrast, where the culture prohibits vulnerability, those within it experience men- uh, experiencing mental health problems feel compelled to hide their problems, fearing social exclusion." So if I can ask you for and if we can sort of use football as an example where possible for Mm -hmm. a a football player whose experience doesn't align with those cultural expectations. Is it difficult for that player to reach the very top level of the sport? Or or, or would you say that there are players at the very top who might be uh, restricted by that environment, but it doesn't have... um, doesn't have a total impact on their their performance? What the findings from the research show is that some environments particularly um, value um, a very sort of hyper-masculine culture. So um, that kind of presentation of yourself, which is very maybe aggressive, denial of any vulnerability, kind of restricting the expression of emotion away from things that are maybe uh, wouldn't be seen as mentally tough. So in those environments, it can be really difficult for people if that doesn't match um, how they actually feel. But I think what tends to happen is people just hide those aspects of themselves. So it's not so much that they can't succeed in that environment, um, but that they can't bring them their full self to that environment. So would that come at a cost? Yes, exactly. So it might come at a cost to their mental health. And one of the things that my research found was that people who um, didn't feel that they had that fit felt that they couldn't t- seek support, that they couldn't show that um, show any vulnerability, that they, they feared that they might be socially excluded by teammates if they if they showed that they were suffering from problems. So it tends to be that then people keep that side of themselves hidden yeah. and there's a denial of that side of themselves. But I don't think that means that they also can't get to the top because I think we've seen a lot of examples of athletes who have succeeded at a really high level. And then perhaps after their careers have ended have, have spoken openly about the kind of difficulties that they were experiencing and that kind of tension that they were experiencing. Yeah, I think it can be quite complex really. And that for some people, I think it means that they will find their experience in sport so difficult um, and so challenging to their mental health that they might withdraw from sport. But for other people, I think they can succeed in it if they find a way to somehow adapt or to tolerate or to hide that side of things. It's a kind of cliche almost about, particularly, I suppose, men's sports, that, that you do find that sort of culture. But there are proponents of it, many of whom are within the game. You, you hear it regularly in commentary. You hear it from, from managers and coaches. You know, it's, it's the kind of military conditioning idea. Sure, um, yeah. And there is a kind of there is a perspective that people who aren't quite suited to that just just don't you know simply don't fit within the within the system or that at least that way of managing groups of people is the right way to bring the best out of them is there any truth to that or is it just like old school nonsense I think it's easy to see how that can become uh, what people believe because if you only actually select people who fit in uh, and make it uncomfortable for those people who find that environment difficult then you're only going to find, you know, the people who are going to remain in the sport are people who are going to show those kinds of qualities that are a match for that kind of um, way of doing the culture. But I think that the evidence suggests that actually people really do well in cultures where there's a high level of challenge, but also a high level of support. And those kind of facilitative environments where people can actually develop resilience. Resilience doesn't mean 
being um, in, you know, denying a vulnerability. It can also mean support seeking. It's also about what the resources, the environment provides to people so that they can thrive and do well. So I, I do think there's, it's easy to see why people might believe that that's necessary. Um, and also because it's very normalized for people to own in sport to only show that side of themselves. So you might not see the vulnerability and you might not yeah. see the difficult things that are going on for them. Um, but I don't think in practice that's the case. And I, and I don't think the research would support that that's the case either. I think, and also when you talk to people, I think, um, I mean, this would be clients and, and research participants, they would say that they had their mental health been better and had they had more support around that, that they feel they would have also performed better. Right. Do you know, it feels a little bit like it's it's changing as well. I mean, I say that from, from yeah. the outside, but um, I don't know if you if you watched uh, the Tottenham Hotspurs All or Nothing Amazon documentary. Yes, but, I did. Right, yeah, so it's fairly interesting. And I think one of the common criticisms leveled at uh, Jose Mourinho nowadays is that young players, I mean, there's a much bigger age gap between him and his players than there was when he was at Porto and starting out as a manager. Sure. Um, and one of the common criticisms is that players nowadays don't respond to the same kind of, uh, I suppose, harsh reactions that, that they might have used to have done. Um, but also watching that made me think it's a team of players. They, they experience, um, you know, suffering and, uh, and extreme positivity together rather than uh, on their own, with the exception of injuries, for example. So maybe, you know, maybe do you think that the kind of um, the, the vulnerability and the well, yeah, I suppose the vulnerability can be a shared experience, maybe in not such a stereotypical way as it would be outside of the of a group dynamic. So it's just harder to see. I'm not sure because I think there's there's also quite a bit of um, literature that would suggest that in those team environments, there's uh, the people become socialised to only show certain emotional experiences. Right. Yeah. So that in sport, that might be you can show aggression, you can show excitement, you can show that you're angry and annoyed, but can you show that you're distressed? Um, so. I think there's there are norms around the kinds of emotions that people share, but that doesn't mean to say that people don't bond within that context and that doesn't create these very um, meaningful bonds. But um, I, I would question whether that means they're also, in, in some environments, also sharing that vulnerability in, in a deep way. But that's just my observation from, from what I've read in, in the literature and, and looking from the outside. Yeah, it's really interesting. Athletic identity, uh, here's a quote of yours. Uh, High athletic identity can be a contributory factor in the emergence of mental health problems when the function of that identity is removed. So I guess we're talking about footballers who don't play football, uh, either, you know, long term injuries or players who didn't didn't quite make it professionally. Or, you know, most commonly players who who leave the sport and retire. Is that generally considered to be the hardest time for for an athlete? Yeah, um, I mean, there are a number of periods um, or challenging challenging periods in an athlete's career that have been particular, particularly associated with vulnerability to mental health problems. And um, that would be things like injury performance problems, but particularly, as you say, retirement, um, especially where that's sudden and not planned for. And that's very closely linked to athletic identity, because what athletic identity really means is when someone has high athletic identity, it's when someone's identity is very much dominated by their role as an athlete at the expense of exploring other interests. So that can mean that their sense of purpose, um, their, their sense of meaning, their self, self-worth, self and also their sense of their own value in the world is is around their sporting achievement. And it's particularly, can, it's particularly problematic when um, in sport because it, because people get involved at a high level, sometimes at a very young age, at sort of a critical period for identity formation. 
Um, so if you're thinking football about people going into academies at young ages, their identity as a footballer can become all-consuming and then they might not follow other potential career options or have a, have other, um, you know, develop relationships, friendships outside of sport. When everything's going well, that's great and they feel great about themselves and they get a lot of praise and attention. But if things start to not go well and... You know, as I say, something like retirement or, or an injury, then they lose that sense of self and, and lose all the things that go along with that. So the source of self-worth and the source of self-esteem and the source of also maybe feeling special and like you have value. So it can be a really difficult transition for people and especially also because it happens at, um, in sport at a very young age. Um, so whilst you might be... Um, you know, finishing a career, ready to start a new one, you might be quite late at getting into what the kind of what's next phase and out of step with other people of your of your age group. So I think it brings a lot of challenges and um, is very, very difficult for people. And I, I would say it's probably the most, um, in terms of clients that, that come to me, I would say that's the most um, frequent issue that people come with is that making that transition to retirement. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I suppose it's it's obvious, really. I was going to ask if, if it's likely that that people are more likely to seek seek help if they aren't performing well. I, I assume that's the case. But uh, also, I wondered, on the flip side, what do, you, do you, what do you think about the idea that athletes might be afraid of of sort of tinkering if their performances yeah. are actually successful? Like they don't want to, you know, upset the apple cart even if they are unhappy. Sure. I think that can be a problem if a player can see quite a clear relationship between the problem and their performance. So something like anxiety, it's quite straightforward. They can tell that you know they're they're anxious and their anxiety is getting in the way of performance, and then that doesn't come into it. But there's other things that can make someone happy. I'm, I'm thinking about something unhappy rather. I'm thinking about you know perfectionism particularly stands out, whereby people can also credit that perfectionism with helping them in sport and being part of the reason why they've done well. So in those sorts of cases, it does become quite tricky because they, they're part of them is almost invested in, in staying the same and part of them wants to change and you get this real ambivalence um, around change, around some of those sorts of issues. So, um, you know, but what you'd want to do in therapy is try to help people just have more flexibility. So it's not necessarily about getting rid of the thing that's helpful to them in sport, but it's being able to use it when it serves them to use it but not have the more unhealthy um, version of it that might get in the way in other areas of life and lead to sort of high levels of um, self-criticism and and all the sort of downsides of having that kind of perfectionistic tendency. Right, yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that because the next quote I wanted to read is, to create emotionally healthy environments, organisations can promote expressions of identity and value beyond sport. For example, athletes and other staff can be encouraged to explore other hobbies, interests, relationships and, and career options. Um, I just I wanted to pick up on the point that you just made because I feel like there is a culture within sport and certainly around sport that celebrates players of the highest caliber being you know the first on and the last off the training ground players who are totally obsessively dedicated to what they do and you often hear that from uh, top professionals who are you know in the public eye who, who are doing punditry or you know writing autobiographies or whatever after they've retired they talk about that that perfectionism that you were describing being the reason um, and, and their sort of obsessive dedication being the reason that they reach the very top level of the sport and that seems to be the kind 
kind of the central takeaway for anyone looking for inspiration from top level sport is do you know practice all the time focus entirely on this and kind of forget about everything else but uh, that can't always necessarily be healthy and also seems to be counter to the to the suggestions here of what organizations can do to to promote value beyond sport yeah it can be very problematic I can, it, it's a really dominant narrative as you're saying you know the idea that to be successful in sport you have to be utterly devoted to it and completely single-minded about it so sport really rewards that but at the same time we can we can see that that can be really detrimental um it can be detrimental to mental health but it can actually also be detrimental in performance for some people as well because it can lead to burnout overtraining, other things that pull people away from sport um and actually sort of shrink the talent pool that's available so but I think it's quite an, a very sort of embedded idea in sport. Um, and it does take, you know, sports organizations to really take, uh, you know, a big look at, a look at themselves and, and to question why they're, why they're asking for people to do that, what's um, the potential downsides of that, and to really be conscious of the messages that, that they're giving. So even where on the one hand they might have moved into trying to create these um, psychologically healthy environments and um, and supporting people's well-being they can really undermine that by maintaining this other message that is that you have to have a high athletic identity to, to, to succeed here and that that becomes almost for a player a way of communicating that they are devoted and that they have the right attitude and there's a kind of performance aspect to it as well in that you're almost you know performing this expected identity in order to present yourself as someone who fits in and someone the type of person who can succeed at the high level you mentioned um towards the beginning there the idea of, of burnout i wonder if um if the players that we're that we're talking about speaking you know after retirement or you know about perfectionism and about obsession if um they just don't mention when they when they rested because presumably they must have done right i mean i guess it's individual to each person but a player cannot train 12 hours a day uh, without yeah. injuring themselves or, or burning out so maybe it's just it, these are the these are the the aspects of their personality and their dedication which are for highlighting it doesn't show the whole picture there's a lot of sort of very dominant narratives around sport as we say and um, the research shows that there's um, something that's been termed the performance narrative, um, which is, comes from the uh, the, the um, studies by uh, Katrina Douglas and David Carlos. And the performance narrative is all about that complete um, dedication to sport, winning is everything. And people often talk about their experience along that sort of, they tell it from that storyline and from that perspective, but it might not capture the the reality of the experience. It's partly just how people have become accustomed to talking about sport and how um, you know the media is accustomed to talking about sports people. So um, I don't think it tells the whole story. No. Well, this leads us on very nicely to identity construction. Uh, and I suppose the media is part of this as well, but also all, all supporters. So there's a quote within your within your uh, within your piece. Um, My identity is also constituted by the stories other people construct around the things about me that seem most important to them, which I think is a fascinating idea. And given that many athletes are in the public eye and therefore have many of the stories other people construct around them, that must hamper their sense of self identity if it's if it's being built by other people as as well as as you mentioned the media. Yes, exactly. So what people often will say is that um, not only um, is, are, are they valuing themselves around um, their sports achievements, but that's how other people interact with them. So when, when people talk to them, they talk to them really exclusively about sport. Um, and, you know, even as 
you know teenagers growing up you know at school that they're, they're known for their particular sport and that becomes how they're identified by other people so part of it is the stories you tell yourself about yourself but other, another part of our identity is, is what we've told about ourselves by other people and if what we're being told about, and also, I guess, in the wider culture as well, there, there are, as I say, particular storylines about what sports people are like and the kind of characteristics that they have. And so you can start to absorb some of that and internalize that, and that can become your norm and how you identify yourself. Yeah. So yeah, there's, there's a definite interplay between you know the outside world in terms of how you then understand yourself. Yeah, which which sucks, right? Because if you're playing football and, uh, you know, there's however many tens of thousands of people there and without wanting to be crude, they're constantly shouting at you that you're shit. Mm. Uh, and also, you know, then, I mean, obviously, like, everyone makes mistakes too mm. to bring up another dominant narrative, particularly within the media, whenever a young male footballer has a, a promiscuous incident, let's put it that way, uh, yeah. it, they are kind of immediately linked with uh, every previous footballer who's had a promiscuous yeah. incident. And the implication being that they're sort of careless young men with too much money. Uh, they're just going around having sex with everyone and uh, they, they really should be focusing on their sport. They should be staying in their lane, which I think is, is something you hear you know, so, so much nowadays. Um, that must be difficult for anybody to manage, let alone uh, players, many of whom are not even 20 years old yet. It's, it's such a sort of important part, a period of life in terms of um, figuring out who you are and, and to be constantly being bombarded with messages from outside that almost telling you who you are. Um, then it takes a little bit of work in, in yourself to resist that. Um, and you have to perhaps be quite conscious of the differences between how you experience yourself versus what people are telling you about yourself. So yeah, I think that that is a definitely a challenge. And I think it's very, very hard for people to, you know, you can talk about, you know, screening out or not listening to social media, and but it, the, those voices are become very loud and all around you. So I think it becomes really difficult for people to manage that, and especially when they're young. Particularly if they're confirmed by your own voice about yourself too. I mean, we uh, at TIFO, we get quite a lot of comments underneath videos or, you know, people tweet at us and so, and it's nothing in comparison to Premier League footballers, but the ones that the ones that get to me the most, Sally, yeah. are the ones that I sort of think, oh, well, they're kind of right. Like I yeah, did, yeah, I yeah. did cock that up. Um, sure. You know, so I suppose for players who make mistakes within games, that's difficult. Yeah, exactly. If you've got that self, very self-critical, you know, relationship to yourself already, then that can just yeah. reinforce that. Which I assume most footballers do, because that's I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but. I recognise in myself when I improve at something, it's because I've sort of practised it and because I was bad at it the first time I did it. I, I generally make the assumption that footballers playing at the very top level have to be exceptionally dedicated and, and have to be sort of self-critical to, to constantly improve. Is is that a sort of unfair expectation, do you think? I, I think there's different versions of being self-critical, um, some of which can be really helpful and some of which can be um, problematic. So... You know, if, you've, if you're self-critical in a way that's, uh, that effectively encourages you to keep trying and can lead to actually motivation to succeed, then that's helpful. But if your self-criticalness um, means that you've got fear of failure in a way that makes you just want to avoid making mistakes or avoid taking risks um, in case it goes wrong, then it can be detrimental. So it's almost like using that self-criticality um, in, a, in a healthy and helpful way. 
um, rather than in a way just to put yourself down and feel bad about yourself. I was just thinking about players that retire and I don't imagine as a psychotherapist you actually have this problem, Sally. Mm -hmm. But for me, when I go on a holiday that's longer than a week, Uh I go from thinking my job is the most important thing in the world and I must do it at all times to thinking it's so stupid and it's completely pointless. What am I doing? And then I go back to work and, you know, I just get, get back in it again. Uh, I can't think of many things uh, that, that, that might do this more than football because when you retire from your football career, you go from a, a position, I imagine, where you are you know, sort of lauded by tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of people in certain circumstances. You will have had highs, obviously lows as well, but many highs within your career where you know, thousands of people are, are celebrating your, your every move. Mm. Uh, and when you reflect on that and you're no longer doing it and you're not in it every day, football really is, you know, it's quite stupid, but not, in a, you know, obviously it, it, it's, it's very pleasing to many people and it's a sport that lots of people enjoy and there's, there is obvious value in it, but thinking about it, um, you know, more seriously, it's an odd thing to do. It doesn't particularly, you know, help anyone in a direct way. You can't really get to the end of your career and, um, feel a great deal. I imagine of sort of, obvious satisfaction um in in that regard in this you know the same way for me the same way i would have thought for most jobs which is why i'm not including yours mm-hmm. but does that um, that must lead to fairly significant sort of identity crises because that would be difficult to to come to terms with i mean maybe i'm just putting you know putting thoughts in people's heads and that that doesn't happen that often but i feel like that's what would happen to me mm. Um, I'm not sure how familiar that is really from the people that I've worked with. Um, I think they tend to look, well, I suppose there's variation. I I think because their identities have been so dominated by sport, they tend to still hold sport as being of huge importance and and just experience it as a huge loss um, rather than perhaps looking back without that satisfaction unless their careers haven't really worked out and they've put a lot of time and effort into something but you know it's ended prematurely through you know injury or another reason then there's then perhaps a sense of sort of um what was all that about but um i think more generally i see people almost kind of mourning the loss of that and that they don't have those um experiences of or they can't really replace that kind of experience right um, or feel that um, you know the, the specialness that you have when you when you're achieving at that level, and that becomes very hard to yeah hard to replace and to find that function from something else. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's jump to trauma then, because that feels okay. like a good, good time to talk about trauma. Uh, here's a quote about trauma from your, uh, from your uh, thesis. The criteria for post, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder requires that someone be exposed as a direct victim, witness, or indirect victim to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violation. The responses to such events as sporting injury, concussion, or the loss of identity following retirement have been found to share uh, the, that symptomology. So presumably this is because of uh, you know, a footballing career being kind of symbolically like a life and a life that is that is now over or has been you know threatened with threatened with death is that is that the thinking um yeah i think so it's that um a kind of loss of the self 
in some way and a, a loss of the kind of solid ground and the foundations that you've built your um, your identity on. So even though people might not have gone through specific things that would qualify as traumatic in, in the in the typical sense, um, the way they feel following retirement can still fit the same sort of symptomology in that way. Okay. And actually, uh, to, to take that on as well, there was something else that I found really interesting uh, in the trauma section. Uh, the mm-hmm. quote reads, where trauma stories are shared, uh, Day notes how such stories tend to celebrate triumph over adversity with positive endings and growth after trauma. Uh, all the stories in this study fit the narrative type, which is fascinating. And, you know, the opposite extreme as well. People tell the stories of when people overcome or or succumb to trauma. So the sad stories that elicit sympathy often end in, in a death or a disabling circumstance. Presumably, therefore, most people who experience trauma exist somewhere in between those two things, like not totally overcoming and not like totally succumbing. So uh, we don't tell these stories because they don't fit the good story narrative or because we're afraid that the, the stories don't end in, in a resolution. Yeah, um, it seems like we do have particular storylines that are preferred um, that make for a good story in a sense. And there's a... Um, a researcher, Arthur Frank, who did some work about this in relation to illness narratives um, and found that people tended to talk in terms of three particular types of plot. Um, and and that can that can happen in other contexts as well. There are particular types of storyline that, sat- that are satisfying and that's when they have a kind of, usually a kind of nice, uh, neat ending of some sort. Right, yeah. Uh, or a moral of the story or, you know, something that's been learned. Where people, the experience doesn't fit that, um, where they don't just kind of, get better or get worse, as you say, then it becomes quite difficult to talk about. And, and another thing that's been said is that um, suffering needs stories. Like, so for people to make sense of their own suffering, and that, that was Frank again who said that, I think, um, for people to make sense of their own suffering, they need to hear similar stories so that they can relate and be able to go, oh, yeah, that's what happened to me. Um, so, you know, without those stories being put out there and people can find their experience quite hard to make sense of themselves and then quite hard to to articulate and put out there as well. Right. I mean, like thinking about it, that sort of is football, isn't it, really? I mean, people often call it a pantomime. Uh, the way in which we engage with it uh, is through very sort of basic and repetitive yeah. storylines. Um, and mostly they do kind of have, you know, they're, they're sort of forced in in a direction. Either yeah. this is a terrible thing that's happening. Like if a player doesn't, you know, striker doesn't score for three games, like they're on a terrible drought uh, versus, um, you know, a striker who scores three goals in, uh, in three games in a row. They're having, a, you know, the best moment of their career. It sort of feels like uh, players, generally speaking, are pushed to extremes, or at least that's the way that people who, who are watching the sport engage with it. So I suppose it's not, not really surprising that you would find... Uh, that this treatment of trauma, which I imagine is more pervasive within wider culture, it definitely exists within football as well on the basis of the fact that it literally just is a series of the same storylines every year. Yes, exactly. And there is, as you say, this tendency to be very quite simplistic in, in the storylines. So, you know, there's heroes and villains and comebacks and, um, you know, people often talk about their stories as overcoming some great odds. You know, those are the sorts of things you hear a lot. But actually, things are a lot more complex and things that don't fit get left out. Do you ever worry about your impact on a player's performance as a result of therapeutic work? I have to be honest that if the, you know, the, the stuff around performance and winning is so, you know, dominant around um, in sport that it does 
common you know it's therefore present in the relationship in the therapy relationship as well so I can find myself feeling that you know feeling this pressure that I've got to perform or I've got to help someone perform and, and help them win um, but I think it's really important to resist taking that on um, and it can be quite useful um, to, to notice it because it, it can also help us to understand as a therapist the experience of the client and the kind of pressures that they're under. But it's important that as a therapist, you don't then buy into that and get caught up with that dynamic whereby you might replicate some of the problems that a client has um, you know, outside there in the world where they're only valued around winning and performance by you also kind of colluding with right, yeah. with that. So, but you know, it, it I can still feel it, you know, I can feel that pressure, but yeah. um, do my best to uh, to resist it. And presumably that's like, in a way, then completely different from treating non-sporting people or, you know, I guess people who don't have work lives with highly orientated goals. I think there are always lots of ways that your clients, what your clients go through can connect with you in some way um, where you, where that, that, that's a familiar process in, as in that push to, or that, that's somehow that invitation in in the, in the uh, dynamic between you to recreate something that's happened before that's the kind of phenomenon that we talk about a lot in psychotherapy but it wouldn't you know but it would be different kinds of things depending on what what sort of issues the client has and I do particularly notice obviously working with when when I work with sports people that it is that performance uh, thing that comes in and that wanting to for me to perform and wanting to and buying into them as a performer and when you do work with with sports people, what is your basic practice? Is it is it to, to have a sort of set number of sessions in mind, or do you have an open ended uh, schedule with people generally? Generally, I work in an open ended way. But but if someone's been referred to me by another organisation, um, then that's been funded out externally, then we would work within whatever um, number of sessions they've set. But my my preference and my my standard way of working is to do that in an open ended way. That must be quite different set of challenges if you if you know you've only got 10 sessions versus open-ended right I mean yeah. it must change the way you approach it you can't perhaps go into the same kinds of depth you have to perhaps be a bit more focused on um what someone's looking for from that from that process so certainly um it is different and longer term work you know so some problems lend themselves to shorter term and some problems lend, lend themselves to longer term so there's variation around that as well and also what people are looking for sometimes people just really want to address a particular thing whereas other people almost want to use therapy as a, a really long-term tool in their lives to for reflection and understanding themselves better and personal development so right. um, yeah there's differences in how you would work depending on what's literally the, the constraints of time and, and also what someone wants from the process the other thing i'm interested in in that regard is uh, is language because so i've seen a psychotherapist for five or six years mm -hmm. and when i first w uh, went i I literally didn't know how to talk about it. I mean, I don't mean yeah. there's the special psychotherapy language. I mean, you did say the word notice, which I picked up on, but uh, the, the, I don't mean the kind of technical aspects. I just mean uh, like emotional words or, you know, words that would be used to describe um, emotional states. I wasn't very practiced in it, despite like having a good vocabulary. And I yeah. just wonder, you know, with there is a sort of general uh, narrative and assumption, which I'm sure in, in uh, you know, many cases is not accurate at all. But as a result of uh, the fact that Premier League players have to generally focus almost entirely on football uh, throughout their uh, childhood years and less so on education there's a kind of uh, a general expectation that maybe uh, they are less educated and therefore have you know less of a vocabulary what what do you have challenges um 
as I've described, I do outside of that environment too. But do, do you find that they have to learn the language over a period of time? One of the things that you're trying to do in therapy is to help people to to access how they feel and sometimes to lend them the words so that they can yeah. put it into words where they haven't. Um, and often it's in your, your socialization through your home environment as well. Um, it's, it's often like the parental relationship that teaches children how to manage emotions, express emotions, regulate emotions. But that can, I think, certainly be reinforced by the other kinds of environments they're in. And if you're also in a, a school environment or, like you say, a, a sort of football environment where you're not um, typically talking about how you feel or being encouraged to reflect about that or you're only you're only expressing certain feelings and not others, because what often is the case is that people are quite comfortable maybe with feelings like um, anger but not able to articulate things like sadness or fear. Right. Um, so you are, yeah, so in therapy you are helping with that. But but having said that, um, I actually have found most of the footballs I've worked with have, have been um, very self-aware. Huh. Imagine they're human beings, Tender. <laughs> I know. <laughs> who'd, who'd have thought it? Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Okay, job security. We're on the home straight now, Sally. Thank you. Uh-huh. Job security. Several uh, participants in your research talk about the the power of the coach, and you reference the relationship dynamic between coaches and, and athletes to be particularly power laden. Um, and stories from athletes describe some coaches viewing mental health issues as weaknesses. Some coaches, uh, you know, normalising aggressive behaviour in the group so that players learn to tolerate it as part of their jobs. Uh, other athletes fearing the the power exercised by coaches as it relates to team selection. So if their mental health issues were, were known to coaching staff, maybe they wouldn't be selected. It sounds very stigmatic uh, in a way that I, I kind of thought, you know, at least wider society had sort of left behind. Um, how good a description is this uh, of football generally in, in your experience? I think it's difficult to actually generalise because I think there's an awful lot of variability. And because the insecurity doesn't just affect the players, the insecurity is so around for for coaches as well Uh, I think sometimes that kind of um, the way that they can um, interact with players in a way that that can be difficult is also a reflection of their own anxiety um, and their own insecurity as well and also I think sometimes even though there's such a a fear of of being stigmatized and being shamed around um, mental health issues and and feeling vulnerable that even if a coach can present in, in a very uh, supportive way, the athlete may still not feel okay to share their fears or, or what's happening for them. That, you know, they really don't want to take any risk 
that may have an impact on on selection or, or how they're viewed and whether they're um, seen as, as weak in some way. And I think often you hear players, they'll often say that they know that the coach will be fine, but they still just can't. Or that if, if someone else was to, it's okay for someone else not to be okay, they, they, but not for them. So there's, there's this sort of inhibition around speaking up. So even if the environment or a coach isn't sort of directly um, dismissive, of mental health problems it's still they still might have to be very very proactive in encouraging people to be able to talk about things like that because there's so much fear that they might be you know give a reason for a coach not to not to select them so um, yeah I think the power imbalance is really really um, important in terms of why it's so difficult for people to feel safe to talk about those sorts of things. And you know that part of uh, your thesis got me thinking about what footballers actually have control of and it's really not that much you know I made a little list like one percent of them you know play professionally or you know make it I suppose and even then they are at constant risk of injury they have very little job security they aren't always in control of where they live or or where they have to move their family to they can't control the outcome of results only to a limited extent team performance they can't control selection or coach preferences they can't control in some cases their own value uh, and the, you know the key point that, that that you make in the in the thesis is because coaches hold so much control over players in this regard, they're also in charge of the environment that is set for players, which you say allows space for problematic and abusive behaviours to silence those who wish um, to speak out for fear of career consequences. It it, it sort of paints quite a, a, a grim picture, really. And I, you know I take take the point um, that you just made that even even if coaches were encouraging of such things it maybe would have to be very encouraging uh, because there's such a culture of fear but when I don't know when we talk about it here it, it seems kind of I mean I realise it's a serious issue but it seems kind of silly doesn't it it, it seems like um, maybe it's just because I'm a young person but it seems like it should be a relic of the past which clearly is not a relic of the past it's certainly changing um, but they're, they're you know, such a long standing I mean in the broader culture as well as in sports culture I mean it's only relatively recently that mental health stuff has been um, talked about more openly so there's, there's such a long sort of standing stigmatising around um around that that sort of thing that and I think probably in sports it's just all a bit exaggerated and when people are fearful that it's going to impact what happens next for them or whether they whether they're going to get funding or selection then it it just becomes very risky whether those consequences that they are imagining are are real or just perceived um, I think it's important that the environments are really committed to being um, psychologically healthy environments so that people do feel that they have the psychological safety to be able to speak off about some of this stuff. Um, and I think one of the things that can be, you know, you can move on and you can move forward in one way. So you might find that an organization is putting in some mental health awareness and having some procedures in place, but that can be really undermined just by the the kind of language that's used, the yeah. kind of version of mental toughness that's talked about. Um, you know, if vulnerability is never shown, mistakes are never owned up to, then it can sort of, in a in an implicit way, let people know that that's not okay, even if on another level you're saying it is okay. So it's quite complex um, how to create the kinds of environments where people do feel safe um, to talk about things that are difficult. Well, speaking of an environment, what does a psychotherapist who watches Tottenham Hotspur's documentary think about Tottenham Hotspur <laughs> after watching the documentary? You don't have to answer the question, but I'd love to know. <laughs> 
Uh, um, it was intriguing. Jose did show some really good understanding of the psychology of his players and the need to be both challenging and supportive. I, just, I was just curious about uh, how much of it was was managed and how much of it wasn't and you know if if parts were I, I thought for example that every scene where um a player was talking about their future at the club so christian erickson danny yeah. rose i think were the two main ones mm. the way in which that was that was portrayed uh was as if the club and Mourinho and um, and particularly daniel levy were being very sort of gently gently um mm. and the players both reacted really defensively seemingly to, to no ag- aggressor uh, and that just made me think that obviously they don't trust the club, uh, mm. and that's we're not being shown why, uh, which yeah. for, for obvious reasons. But that just that seemed like that seemed like it was a reaction to a sort of culture rather than to those specific incidences. Yeah, I guess it did point to some mistrust or a sense of uh, a feeling of not being people not being very honest or, or cared for. But yeah, it's very hard to know, isn't it, when you're watching a very. Uh, uh, very selected bits um, to sort of draw any conclusions from it. Yeah, yeah. But hey, it was interesting. I enjoyed mm. it. Yeah, um, that's all I have to ask you, unless there's anything else that you would like to say. No, that's um, it's been really interesting chatting to you. So thank you for taking an interest. Okay, well, that concludes uh, today's episode. Uh, Finally, I would just like to say thank you to Sally for participating. I hope those of you listening enjoyed today's episode and gave you some food for thought, as it gave me. Finally, uh, I would like to remind you that if you would like to get The Athletic for £1 a month, you can visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO to do so. Very top value. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll be back later in the week with something uh, examining the uh, the weekend of football, the broader themes. Uh, but for now, goodbye. Goodbye.